Today on the show, I'm excited to talk with Mickey Agrawal. Not only has she founded multiple businesses across industries, but she's also found a unified message to be an advocate for women's empowerment both here in the U.S. and abroad. One thing that stands out about Mickey is her ability to be a brave voice in industries that are typically taboo. Mickey has founded over four companies, including Thinks, which makes period-proof underwear, and was named one of Fast Company's most innovative companies of 2017, Wild, a gluten-free, farm-friendly pizza eatery, Icon, which makes pee-proof underwear for the unapologetic woman, Tushy, which is a designer bidet attachment for your toilet, and Mickey is also a public speaker for her mission and the author of two books, one which is yet to be released. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Mickey Apple. All right, I'm here with Mickey Agarwal. Mickey, how you doing? Great, how are you? Doing awesome. Uh, so I wanted to start by jumping in, and um, I know you wear hats a lot, and I want to get back to hats uh, in general, but I thought it'd be fun to start by saying or asking, what metaphorical hats are you wearing right now? <laughs> well, um, I have... I think I think everyone has their sort of signature thing, and I think for me, it's like I can't believe that hats kind of came in and out of mod, you know, a la mode, and um, I feel like it's just such a an, an amazing way to now kind of just dis, you know distinguish yourself and and to um, you know to add some flavor to what you're what you're wearing, and I and so I have like a twenty five plus hat collection, and wow. Yeah. What are, and I think what, are just, the, what are the metaphorical hats that you're wearing, like with all these different projects? I, I recorded an intro before this, so people heard, you know, you run Thinks, Wild, Icon, Tushy. What are all these metaphorical hats that you're wearing? Like, what is it that you do day to day? Um, well, I'm in the business of breaking taboos. Um, and that, you know, through innovation, through design, through aesthetic, through, you know, accessible communication, um, you know, I, I sort of look at things that are, have been done in the same way for a very long time, whether it's pizza or periods or pee or poop. <laughs> These are all categories where, you know, there have been very little to no innovation, um, in these spaces in the food category, specifically pizza. Before I started my, my restaurant concept, there was no gluten-free farm to table, organic, local, seasonal, option, um, in the category of a $32 billion category. Um, in the period space, there'd only been three major innovations in the entire 20th century, um, tampons, pads, menstrual cups, you know, and, and there've been very, you know, people just assume that that's just the way you, you know, manage your period. Same thing in the P space, you know, it's just wearing diapers is what you do if you, if you have light bladder leakage or bladder leakage. And in the poop space, you know, you just wipe your butt with toilet paper and with dry paper. And that's just what you do. You know, you take a shower with water and you, you know, wash your hands before a meal and after a meal. And when you wipe your butt, you wipe it with dry paper. That's just what everyone's been doing. And that's what we do now. And it's just like, why is that? Why is it that we eat this, you know, processed food, 
you know, when, when pizza can be made with really healthy ingredients? Why is that we're still leaking in our underwear when it can be done with much, much, you know, better innovative fabrics? Why are we still using dry paper to wipe our butts when it can be done with water like the rest of the world, but, you know, presented in an innovative, beautiful, aesthetically pleasing way? And, you know, that's what is interesting to me is changing culture, is breaking taboos, is opening up these conversations, is getting people to think about something that they assume is status quo, is just the way it is, and saying and questioning it. Why is it done this way? Why is this the acceptable practice? Why is this the type of food we must eat when it can be done completely, you know, upgraded way in all those categories? So that's what's exciting to me. Yeah. Always asking why. Yeah. And so you, you have all of these different creative projects, businesses running at once. So I wanted to ask, how does somebody with so much creativity start on Wall Street? <laughs> well, I mean, when I graduated in 2001, entrepreneurship wasn't really a big, you know, an option. Um, you know, it was investment banking, management consulting, going, becoming a doctor, um, you know, just going very, very traditional routes. There, you know, the, Facebook wasn't a thing back then, you know, really working in startups wasn't a thing. It never, it just never occurred to me that that was an option. And so for me, you know, I just took one of the paths, which was the financial path. My Indian father and Japanese mother really wanted, you know, me to, to work in a respectable industry that wasn't, a do- you know, they were like, if you're not going to be a doctor, then banker is okay, you know, and, um, and it paid really well. It was the best paying gig that I could find. I had student loans to pay back and I didn't know another alternative existed until, until a few years later, until I met a couple of, you know, entrepreneurs living in New York who really inspired me to take that, you know, to jump on that path of entrepreneurship. What did you see when you met those entrepreneurs? Like what was the light bulb that turned on for you at that point? It was just that, oh, wow, you can really pave your own path. You can set your own, you know, life and you can, you don't have to ad- adhere to standard practices. You can create things and, and raise money and you can, you know, just create something out of nothing that just wasn't in the, now it's like a whole thing and everyone's talking about it and being entrepreneurs like the new rock star or whatever. But back then it just wasn't an option. You didn't raise money back then like e- as easily as you did here now. So the light bulb was just, the knowingness that that opportunity and that was possible. But it was, it was still a risk. I mean, did you get pushback um, from friends and family when you left the gig? So what did that transition look like? I mean, it was just, you know, stay in your safe job. Like, why are you, you know, you, you, you have student loans to pay. You're, you're an adult now, like, you know, be responsible. And it was very much a lot of those kinds of comments. But again, it's, it's from, from family and friends who, who, who didn't like, they just wanted you to be as safe as possible, right? For them, your number one thing for their number one thing for their child is safety. And for me, it's my number one thing at the time, especially when you're 22 is like living life to the max, you know, and there's a statistic, you only have 21,000 days to live from the point you graduate college to the point you die. And like, what are we going to do with those 21,000 days? Are we going to live safely? Are we going to live within a set of guidelines and rules that other people from days of old told us that we should abide by? Or can we live absolutely, you know, the most 
interestingly, you know, the most fascinatingly, you know, fascinating way possible, I choose the latter. Yeah. So you wanted something more interesting. And did you have a concept for what you were going to do when you left Wall Street? Did you leave without knowing what you were going to do? Well, so so my my life path and sort of like that jolt of inspiration to go off my on my own kind of happened at 9-11. My subway stop every single morning to go to my investment bank was to World Trade Center. And I was supposed to be there on that day. And it was the first and only day in my life that I slept through my alarm clock. You know, 700 people in my girlfriend's office died and two people in my office died. And every one of my friends had stories of like sprinting underneath a car before like shrapnel pummeled and killed people around them. I mean, these stories are insane. And I just slept through my alarm clock. So it was sort of the universe giving me a boon and saying, this is not your calling, like time to really wake up and and live life to the max. And so I um, wrote down three things I wanted to do with my life. Um, the first was to play soccer professionally. I played all four years at Cornell and, um, and the second was to, to make movies. I worked in the film business in my summers when I was at Cornell. I loved the the storytelling aspect of, of filmmaking. And, and then the third thing was to start a business. And so I one by one tackled all three. I started, I played soccer for the New York magic. I tried out for the team, made the team, made the starting lineup. And then, you know, as the universe unfolds, as it should, I had, you know, three ACL reconstructions thereafter. Um, and then, uh, and I worked in the film business and the film business, you know, worked my way up from, you know, picking up trash on the streets as a PA to, you know, producing commercials and music videos. And, um, you know, during in that, while I was working in the film business is when I had my big sort of light bulb moment for my first business idea, which was born out of a stomach ache. And, you know, I really believe that necessity is the mother of invention. And that saying rings true in everything that, that I do. And, um, the first, the first realization was that, you know, I was, when I was, every time I would eat on the sets of these commercials and music videos, they would offer these healthy, crappy processed foods and I would go home with really horrible stomach aches all the time. And it was really frustrating for me to come home and keel over and just like deal with the pain of my, of my stomach. And so I researched it and discovered the huge massive, massive processed food industry, discovered, you know, the obesity pandemic, discovered all the issues that were, that people were facing in the food space and, uh, and how it was affecting people, you know, just the allergies, the, the, all just the issues. And, um, and I started looking at, at, at the food space and it was very, became very curious and, and wanted to disrupt that as my first discovery of, of what needed to be fixed. And so I uh, thought about my favorite comfort food, which was pizza. And at the time I'd given up, I'd given it up because every time I ate pizza, I would have horrible stomach aches. But if you really think about pizza, it's truly the perfect food because it's, if made with the right ingredients, the, the, the right you know, all the writing, you know, the, the, the protein, the, the vegetables, the, you know, the, um, you know, all the different food groups that you need in your, in your diet are all there, right there in the pizza, if made with the right ingredients. And so I looked in the category of a $32 billion pizza category and discovered there was really nothing, no alternative offerings at the time in New York City. So I just took it upon myself to start New York City's first gluten-free, farm-to-table, local, organic pizza place. <laughs> and you'd, you'd never started a business prior to that. Like, how did you approach, I mean, restaurant business is not easy. How did you approach getting that started and getting that moving? 
Yeah, that was, I think you have to have a very, very serious level of naivete when starting a business, because if you know too much going in, you're like, no way am I doing this? I was like, restaurant, how hard could it be? Meanwhile, I'm like, did not assume that it's 24 seven. You have not a moment to yourself. I lived in my restaurants for almost, you know, six, seven years, you know, seven days a week, washing dishes and taking role, you know, I didn't realize people wouldn't show up to work. And then, you know, and there were just so many things that I just really learned working in the film, in the, in the, in the restaurant business that have, has served me till now. Um, I think it was my training ground on, on developing just thick calloused skin, (laughs) you know, where, um, I think if you work in the restaurant business, you can really withstand and weather any storm in any other business because it's really, it can be very thankless and it is very 24 seven and, and you do flex your, your, you know, your resilient muscles a lot in that business. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And so it sounds like you sort of learned everything the hard way. What do you think gave it the edge to be successful um, being that it was your first restaurant, first business, um, was it just this pure will of keep moving forward? Do you think there were some decisions early on that helped it um, get you know stand out or be seen? Yeah. So so um, you know, I think number one is truly is is a will to survive. Like you make, I made all the rookie mistakes anyone can make. Um, I think also when you're young and scrappy, you have to be not even just young, but when you're scrappy and starting out, you have to. Um, you have to, you know, be, be really creative in, in, in the methods of getting press or the methods of getting people there. So for me, I didn't have any contacts in media back then. I had no friends and relationships in, in press. And so I couldn't afford a PR person. And so instead of just making these boring pamphlet type things, um, I put together this, um, these really weird boxes. And in the box, um, it was this brown box, you know, it's a tiny little brown box you can get from any like Kinko's and, um, it cost you 25, 50 cents for a little brown box that had nothing on it. And then I called my friend whose dad's a doctor. I had him send me 50 IV bags and, uh, that, you know, when you're like at the hospital, the IV bag that goes in your vein. And, um, the tagline for my restaurant was the perfect food at the time before we renamed it to wild, um, with, the new tagline feast with confidence. Um, but the original tagline was the perfect food because I, as I said, pizza can is if done right is the perfect food. And so we, in these boxes, we, we put the IV bag in the box and we put a little postcard that just read the perfect food will be arriving shortly until then don't eat anything. And then underneath the postcard, we had the IV bag and the IV bag read should the lack of sustenance prove to be debilitating, please insert tube into vain. And it was just like this weird thing that, and then I took my bicycle and and rode my bicycle with eight boxes at a time. I took, made a map of all the different press, like all media locations in New York city. And I was like, okay, today I'm going to do these eight locations because they're close to each other. Tomorrow I'm going to ride my bicycle to these eight locations. And I was like a messenger that day. And I hand delivered you know, some of the place I snuck into, like New York Times, I snuck into Florence Fabricant. I passed the guards. I snuck past them. It was like a whole scary, heart-thumping exercise. Um, but then I realized that every media outlet has a back messenger 
mailroom where anyone can go and drop off stuff and just say, I want this delivered to this person and it gets delivered there. So I didn't have to go through the scary process every single time of sneaking in and getting caught. And, um, and people love food. And people love food. I didn't deliver food. I was, I just delivered this weird box, the IV bag that said, don't eat anything until the perfect food arrives. And, um, and so from, from those boxes, New York Times, New York Magazine, like every single, but every single media outlet wrote about my tiny little pizza shop. In fact, we had like the full half page spread in the New York Times Wednesday written by Florence Fabricant who came to my restaurant. It was like insane. Um, but I also made all the rookie mistakes. Like I got pressed too early. You know, I didn't realize that we had to iron out the kinks and I had a line around the corner and we screwed up so big time the first week because we didn't iron out the kinks and we got the press too soon. And that's why there's something as a soft opening and a grand opening. And like the whole point is that, but I was just so eager beaver that I just went straight for the grand opening and it bit me in the ass so hard. And so again, lesson learned for the down the road. Um, so the, but, edge, uh, the edge you yeah. really brought was in the opportunity to do something different that would stand out. So yes, you're scrappy, um, but that means you can do things different in what other restaurants weren't doing. It's not even just restaurants. I think most companies, they just start working with these, you know, they work with PR companies and the PR companies, you know, are pretty cookie cutter and they use, they basically do the manila folder with the little press release on the inside and they send it to them by messenger and everyone on the desk gets piled piles of these press releases on their desks and it's boring to look at. Who wants to look at that? You know, whoever, I guess the people listening on this podcast are visual people. In fact, 65% of humans are visual learners. We don't learn well or or capture anything really well by just reading just words on a page. A picture is worth a thousand words for a reason. And so to provide an experience, to provide something that gets people excited to do something and open something and experience something, that, that gives you a more memorable edge. And so moving forward for all my businesses, for things, Icon Tushy, everything, we've always done these weird, you know, things because it's worked every time. Yeah. Have you always had that drive um, and ability to put yourself out there in that way? Or was that something that was sort of post, um, you know, this wake up call from 9-11 Wall Street, uh, Mickey? Have you been like that since you were a kid? I mean, I, I mean, it's not, it's not about necessarily putting myself out there. You mean putting myself out there what, in, in, in what, in well, what you're, way? Yeah, I guess you're taking this uh, ambitious step to show up, to sneak in, uh, you know, deliver these boxes. I think that's yeah. scary for people to do that. Um, even, you know, like you said, with the, the press that almost crushed you on the first day, it's almost scary to find success like that. So I'm just curious um, if you've always been like that and been able to put yourself out there to make things happen. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I think for me, it's, it's interesting because I'm an identical twin and as an identical twin, when you have somebody from the womb to the tomb, which is our favorite saying, you know, from the womb onwards, you have a buddy who's like, yeah, that's awesome. You know, and who's always like cheering each other on. And every time we were like, we read something to each other, we're like, I love it. It's awesome. Go for it. And there's like this energy that you build with each other. That's, that's really, I think, unlike any, any relationship that a lot of people have. And when you have a buddy like that forever, um, you kind of, you kind of feel like confident to go and try things and do things. You have somebody cheering you on at all times, you know? And, um, I think that's given me 
a lot of confidence, I think, playing sports and like failing a lot as in like, you know, getting beat, in a, a, you know, at a, you know, in a play and you have to get back right back up after to, to, to attack the next play. It's not like, oh, I lost the game or whatever. It's like, no, it's play after play after play in the same game for 90 minutes where you have to stand against an opponent and you, you have to just keep standing back up and standing back up. If you lose a play or win a play, you keep, you have to keep facing the game every single time. And so, I think in sports, it, it really was a huge, huge teacher for me as well. Um, and it's just, it's resilience because when you fail, like, or not fail, but when you, when you, when you try things and they don't work out, um, they're just learnings. And I think, you know, if, if you, if you approach them as failure and make yourself feel like I'm failing or like there's even this term failing forward is a little overused you know, to, to really look at things like I tried, I did it, I learned from it and I've grown from it. That's all you can do in the short life that we're living. 21,000 days. You don't have a lot of time. And to call things like to feel shame and to feel this and to feel dejected or to feel, you know, it's like life goes like this. And so for us to spend years like you know, wallowing makes just zero sense because life ends very soon. Totally. <laughs> so how, how do you know when to quit then? So I think I totally agree. Resilience um, is part of how you can just keep making that progress. How do you know when you um, should quit something? Um, I think when you just stop believing, <laughs> when you stop believing, when you stop having the energy, when you stop feeling that pep in your step or like when you describe it, your eyes sparkle you know, it's like when you see, like, even if it's failing from a public standpoint, like, for example, my businesses, when I first started all of them, it took time for them to ramp up. You know, even if it's a year or two years or six months, every day feels very long. If they're not, if you're like losing money for those first six months or the first year, you're like, but if you really believe that this it deserves to exist, it needs to be in the, on the war in the world right now. I believe in it and I have a small growing set of foot soldiers, you know, even if it's, I'm not profitable right now, but I, I see everyone who's tried it or used it saying incredible things about it. I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to figure out how to just make it to next month make it to next month. And there's going to eventually be a pop, you know, if, if the idea is good enough, if it's meaningful enough, it's timely enough. Um, and if you believe it enough, it's going to work. Like my restaurants, there were so many points where it could have failed because I'm not a restaurateur. I'm not an operator. I don't, I've never run a restaurant before. And there's so many points where I'm just like, what am I doing? But I believed in, I believed in the food. I believed in its promise. I believed in what it's, you know, like the fact that people got, went there and fell in love there. People had their first pizza experience after 20 years of not eating pizza back then because they couldn't eat gluten, gluten or, you know, and they're like, this is my first time eating pizza in 20 years. Or like, this is where I fell in love. And this is because I'm gluten free. And I brought my, this, my first date and we fell in love here. And now we're married. And this is where we came after our, we got married at city hall. And I'm just like, it's these stories that just keep me lit up and, you know, as, as thankless as, as a lot of, a lot of it can be, it's just those moments that really, you know, that you just, you just hold on to. Totally. Yeah. Some, and sometimes you need uh, a rebrand and you mentioned this earlier from slice to wild from prance, yeah. uh, or was it prance, yeah. prance to things. <laughs> and, and so, yeah. um, can you walk me through uh, both how you think about naming and, um, when you felt it was time to rebrand? Was there a pattern to that? 
Yeah, I think it's always where you are in your own life. You know, like slice is cute and it's young and it's fun and wild is like cool and like sexy and like and not that I'm you know sexy or anything, but like, but you know, you're 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 more it's more grown up. Like slice is like I'm a it's a slice of life versus like I'm like you know like it's from the wild. You know, it's like I love the fact that wild. It's not like I'm wild and free. It's more it's I am wild and free, but like it's more like from the wild. You know, like what comes from the wild is already you know, perfect. There's perfection and imperfection. When you're young and you're, you know, early twenties, mid twenties, everyone's trying to be perfect and look perfect. But as you get older in your thirties, you start to really embrace your imperfections and the things that come from the wild, whether it's two tomatoes that don't look like one another, right? Like one tomato could be, if it's mass produced in a factory farm, they look exactly the same. That's not beautiful. When there are two beautiful tomatoes that are from the wild, that are different shape, that are a little bit, you know, like not perfectly formed, that's perfect because it's from the wild. And so that's the wild that my restaurant, you know, evolved into. It's like, I am settling into my imperfections. I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for them. I'm not trying to be perfect anymore. And, and this is why it's, it's my evolution, you know, for, for myself. Same thing from Prance to Thinks, you know, Prance was like, I'm prancing in the field. It's like very young again. It's very 20 somethings. But, you know, when it really became Thinks, um, you know, it was, it really was about um, thoughtful, you know, you know, product that thinks of you and thinks of women around the world. You know, these are things. Tushy is cute because, you know, and, and that's my newest brand. And it's, it, it, it's cute, but also sexy. It's like your tush, you know, it's about your butt, your butt, you know, it's, it's, it can be sexy if you're, if it, it depends on the nuances and the tone. You can say, oh, you're cute little tushy when you're talking to a baby. And you can say, oh, like, I love your tush. You know, I love your tushy. You know, like it depends, it just depends on tonality there. So that, this is why I love the word tushy for my, you know, for my bidet company. And, and by the way, it's not tushy.com because it is a porn site. Oh man. Go to <laughs> hello tushy.com. Hello tushy.com, not tushy.com, please, because you will be. <laughs> Very surprise. pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Or not so pleasantly surprised if you don't. If you, yeah. That's interesting. So um, it's, it's sort of almost like as you grew confidence, these rebrands sort of reflected that and you felt more settled into these businesses. So um, I guess I want to hear, how did you go from pizza to periods? I think, again, necessity is the mother of invention. You know, for me, I had stomach aches. That was the first issue that I faced. And I was like, I want to eat pizza. And I couldn't find pizza that was both good for me and tasted delicious. Um, and then and then every time I was running from one restaurant to another, I was building my first restaurant then built my second restaurant. And I'll never forget this moment that I'll imprint forever in my entire, in my life. Like, I will never forget this moment when I was building my second restaurant in the West Village. And I was riding my bicycle from the, my first restaurant on the Upper East Side to the West Village. And I was riding down the West Side Highway. And, and it was, it was like sun, the sun was setting. And I remember like, it was a beautiful sunny day and I was riding my bicycle and I'll just never forget where I was just, I just started crying because I was like, I built this life. I'm going from my restaurant to my restaurant and riding my bicycle down the West side highway with the sun shining on my face. And this is just a moment I will imprint forever. And, um, it's just, I, I, I think, um, uh, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just retracing my steps. The, going back to your question. Yeah. Well, I, I love I, hearing about the sort of the reward, which is what you're talking about there is you had all this struggle and now you've built this life yeah. for yourself. And, um, yeah, I was just asking kind of, how did you switch from a uh, gluten-free restaurant? Yes, yes, to, yes, to yes, yeah. yes, yes. 
Yes. So, so that, so going from one restaurant to another, I would ride the bicycle all the, all, every single time from one restaurant to another. And, and I would have sometimes period accidents because I would forget to change my tampon or pad. And it was so annoying. It was so messy. I would have to run home and change, interrupt my day. It was very just, it was just so annoying. And, you know, I kept having these accidents, these period accidents every single month. And I looked to the market and I was like, this is, there's got to be a better way. And so, you know, my twin sister, myself and our third co-founder spent the next, you know, almost four years developing and patenting a technology women's underwear. Um, my sister and I came up with the idea in 2005 at our family barbecue when we were defending our three-legged race championship title. And my sister started her period in the middle of the race and we had to finish the race, you know, with her like bleeding everywhere. And, you know, um, we sprinted together, still tied together up the stairs into the bathroom and as she was washing out the blood from, from the underwear is when we had the idea. And then, you know, cut to 2011, uh, we brought in our third co-founder and then we spent the next, uh, four, four years developing the technology and, and creating the company. What was, what was the most surprising thing you learned as you did that research into that industry? Um, I would say, um, that it was just very disparate. You know, there was like this technology here, that technology here, this fabric here, that fabric here, but no one was thinking about period proof underwear from a business standpoint. There were some period proof underwears that tried to exist in the past. Um, and they, they, they sort of were plasticky. They were bulky. They were ugly. They were something that just the modern woman wouldn't want to wear, you know, I didn't want to wear any of those products. And so it was just like developing the best in class product that women would want to wear and feel great in that I wanted to wear. And so that's what took forever to develop. Did you raise money for that company? We did. And we, it took us, a, well, the first year we raised $0 because all the investors we were talking to were men and they were like, gross. We shouldn't be hearing about this. Let me show my wife. The wives are conservative. And they're like, ew, I'm never bleeding in my underwear. It sounds gross. And it was just a whole thing. And so, um, we had to, we ended up doing a Kickstarter campaign, um, in 2013 and, and raised $65,000 on Kickstarter, which funded our first 3000 units. And then once we, we got the 3000 units out to our customers, we sent out a survey afterward after a month and said, what do you think of the product? And we got resoundingly positive, responses and then took those survey results and then presented those to new investors and just said, look, we have 3000 happy customers, you know, who love this product. We just want to scale this. And we were able to raise like $450,000. And then we raised another series A from strategic investment partners. Yeah. Where did that money go? I think one thing that stands out to me about your brands is uh, just the quality of the design, but was there a lot of uh, design development that needed to happen for the product? We de we developed and designed the whole thing ourselves. You went to China China a few times to you know we worked with a you know a Chinese a Chinese manufacturing uh, guy and it was like a whole that's why it took almost four years you know to develop so it was a very long process of trial and error. Why can't we talk about so you've got a uh, you know business for pee poop <laughs> uh, underwear? Why can't we talk about these topics? Well, I mean, it's, it's, you think about like, let's go to the pooping category, right? Like people are like, they don't want to talk about shit. It stinks. It's gross. You're smearing it up your butt. You're sitting on fecal matter. It's, it gives you hemorrhoids. Like it's, but when you really think about this area of your body, 
If it's branded correctly, it's a part of your body that you feel most pleasure. It's a part of the body that produces children. It's a part of the body that eliminates waste from your body so you can function properly. It's like the most essential part of your body. And yet we, we choose to, you know, make it feel bad. We choose to feel uncomfortable around a part of our body that's the most, you know, sensual and beautiful and, 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 and necessary. And so, for example, with tushy, you know, you also think about the way things have been. People have been using toilet paper in this country since the, you know, late 1800s. You know, the way you wipe your butt hasn't changed since the late 1800s. And so people have just assumed that this is the way you do it. You take a piece of dry paper and you smear poop up your butt and you sit on that all day long. It doesn't properly clean you, but you don't think about it because it's just what you've been doing. You don't question it, right? But if you actually question it, you're like, wait a minute, I take a shower to clean myself. I wash my hands to clean myself. But when I take a shit, I don't, I literally use dry paper. Like imagine you jump in the shower and using dry paper to wash your body or before you eat a meal, when you make a chicken and you're like cooking a, a chicken cutlet and it's got salmonella all over it or whatever. And you're like, you, 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 instead of like washing it, you use dry paper to pat. It just doesn't make any sense. And so when you actually think about it, you're like, oh wow, the rest of the world, Japan, Italy, you're all the parts of Europe, Middle East, South America, you know, Asia, they all use bidets. And yet in this country, they don't. And so we developed a very affordable $69 product that looks like an iPhone next to your toilet. It takes 10 minutes to install. There's no plumbing, no electrical required. It's literally the most like simple, beautiful product that just can turn your otherwise barbaric 1800s experience into an upgraded 21st century, beautiful, modern experience. But again, people don't think about it. And so it's on us to educate people properly, to educate them not by like shaming people or by beating them over the head, but really by using beautiful aesthetics, by using accessible communication, by creating a best in class designed product, you know, something that people will share and talk about. That's how you change culture. Yeah. And so um, I know you've had a bunch of advertising campaigns that have helped there too. Do you want to speak about those and how just even crafting the right messaging is really key there? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, really danced around the, 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 the word period for a very long time because everyone's like, you shouldn't say period, it's crass. You should say time of the month, the, you know, like your cycle or whatever. And we're like, no, we're going to say period. And it was actually one of my girlfriends like came up to me one day and she at a party who I didn't know, she, I barely knew her at the time. And she said to me, you know, I had a dream and I came up with your tagline in my dream. And I was like, really? And she was like, yeah, it's for women with periods. And I was like, that's so funny. It's for, for women with periods. That makes so much sense because every woman has a period and it's, a, it's, a, it's interesting. So we literally the next day changed our tagline to for women with periods and it's, and it's, it's remained. And so, um, you know, we've, we've used a similar sort of, you know, concept for, for tushy as well. It's for people who poop, you know, and, uh, and, and we're just saying what it is. I think when people try too hard to dance around something, especially in a taboo category where we're trying to disrupt the taboo and break the taboo to dance around it actually defeats the purpose of trying to break the taboo in the first place. Right. So, um, it was important for us to, to really just say what it is. So all of these businesses have a social mission. Um, I know you use the term conscious capitalism. Can you explain um, when you made that decision to infuse the company uh, with the social side and also, yeah, and also um, what conscious capitalism means to you? 
Sure. Well, so I sit on the board of Conscious Capitalism. Um, John Mackey, he wrote the book Conscious Capitalism with Raj Chisodia, and um, they're both very, very close friends of mine, and we sit on the board together of Conscious Capitalism. And it's the idea that it's it's not nonprofit, it's not government, it's not, you know, these, it's just, just like social businesses that will change the world, but it's conscious businesses that will change the world. It's not just, a, a, you know, it's it's really, conscious capitalism is, is about uh, every stakeholder winning. It's shareholders, it's in it's um, the customers, it's the vendors, it's the suppliers, it's the environment. Everybody has to be win, 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 win for the company to succeed. And conscious businesses outperform major indices by, you know, multiples, um, because it's a long-term thinking methodology. And, and oftentimes, you know, what John says in his book and, and what we all agree is that, you know, when you become a business, a successful business, you're now all of a sudden vilified as a corporation, you know, when you're like, oh, corporate this and corporate that. It's like, no, we are a conscious business. We just happen to be bigger. And, and the whole point of like people vilify whole foods and it's, it's, it's changed the world from a food standpoint, you know, and the fact that, people are trying to vilify Whole Foods because they're a corporation worth billions of dollars is just the wrong way to think about it. You can vilify like, you know, Exxon Mobil and these kinds of big corporations who are not doing good things for the planet. But for co- companies who are growing and doing great things for the planet should not be vilified because we're conscious. And so that's one of the key, that, that, that's another key thing to think about when building a conscious business um, and thinking about conscious capitalism. And and, yeah, I was gonna say, how did you infuse that? How did you, you know, sort of take that learning and then infuse that into your own companies? Yeah, I mean, I think all of our businesses have a social element to all of them, and I think one of the reasons for me is because you know I'm half Japanese, half Indian, and my father came to this country with five dollars in his pocket from India, and in one generation was able to put three kids through Ivy League schools and really built the American dream for us. Um, and I'm very, very aware that our life could be very different. His life could be very different had he not come to this country, you know? Um, so we, um, I, I think it's, it's every business's duty to create a double bottom line to make it a, a it's, it's, do good and do well. You know, you can do both. You can do well in business and you can do good things while you're building the business at the same time. So for example, with Tushy right now, with my, with my newest company, we are funding Samagra, which is a uh, company based in India and they bring clean latrines to communities in the urban, in the urban poor areas where, you know, 65% of India, you know, Indians don't have access to clean toilets, especially girls and women are, you know, uh, very vulnerable in these, in, in, um, this space, because when, as a guy, you can just unzip and kind of go anywhere. Whereas a girl, you have to crouch down and you have to like, you're very exposed. So a lot of women and girls are getting raped and are getting harassed and are getting so many issues are happening to them are getting just taunted and, and just name called. Um, and so we're helping build toilets specifically for girls, uh, and women so they can use, um, all over India. So we're very, very proud of that partnership. And that again, it serves us. Like, I think it's, um, and same thing with things for every things underwear sold, we are helping fund, you know, um, menstrual products for girls in the developing world. And I think what's really important there for, for my companies was just that, you know, entrepreneurship is hard. It is not easy. It is thankless again, like I said. And it's, and it's sometimes it's, sometimes it's, you're, you're in sludge. And 
what I have to do on the, in those times. I close my eyes and I'm like, I am helping somebody in need right now with every product that I sell. I am literally changing the life of a family like in India forever, you know, like for every Toshi sold, we are funding a family access to clean latrines in India that they never would have access to. They're all practicing open defecation, crapping outside like animals, you know, and that's not okay for our brothers and sisters, our earth, fellow earthlings who live, just happen to live on in another part of the world. And so we want to give them dignified defecation, the ability to have, you know, dignity when they defecate. And, um, and so that's what keeps me going when I'm going through the shit in, in business. And I think for entrepreneurs, if you keep that double bottom line, it will keep people going through the darkest times of growing a business. Totally. And you're, you're writing your second book now. Um, and I wonder if this is sort of infused into that, but can you, um, can you tell me some about the second book and, uh, yeah, where, yes. where you came up with the idea for it? Sure. So the book is called Disrupt Her and, um, it's looking, it's sort of like, a a business and life playbook for the modern woman. And it's, it looks, it's looking at 13 different parts of a woman's life in business and in her personal life. And it's, it's disrupting 13 things that are, have sort of been status quo for a very long time. And, um, and, and, you know, questioning these things and saying, why are these done this way? Why are women held back in this way? Why are women, you know, forced to be contained you know, in this way. And, and, you know, this, it's, it's going to change based on, uh, when you read this book, all those different things are going to just be opened up your, your eyes and your thoughts and your, you're going to start questioning every part of your life after you read this. And it seems like that's really how you, you know, you started these companies was just starting with that question. And so what you're trying to do is turn that light bulb on for other people. Are there a few, um, of those 13 items, Disruptions. disruptions that you can talk about now? Sure. Um, well, so I can talk about the first three right now. I mean, I have all 13 listed out, but the first one really is getting back to our, you know, childlike state of curiosity and wonder. I think as we become adults and, you know, we are told that, you know, you can, you can't be, you can't live in childlike state of wonder. You have to be a responsible adult. And when you lose that childlike state of wonder, you lose a lot of that light in your eyes. You lose a lot of that fire in the spirit, the playfulness, which really can bring about change and, and, um, and transformation in your life. And so, um, when you think about living in a childlike state of wonder, um, oftentimes as adults, we're told, you know, get serious, you know, sit down, like, you know, you know, don't, you know, like, like. All, all these different things that are very much in the realm of of adult of what you should be like as an adult, but you know, for me, someone who's been to Burning Man like now, you know, six times, the most important thing about going to that is that I get to plug back into play. I get to plug back into my creative side. I get to plug back into sort of the whimsical aspect of being sort of just carefree like a kid, and that's what fuels me for the rest of the year. And I think. So many adults have lost that, um, that childlike state of curiosity and wonder because we have to pay bills and we have to get serious and we have to take care of the thing and, and, and work at a job and, and progress in our career. And again, you have 21,000 days to live. Like, why are we choosing to be so serious during that time? And so before you can think about the rest of these disruptions, the first disruption is really, you know, you can be both a responsible adult and you can still live in a childlike state of curiosity and wonder. Um, 
So that's the first one. Um, the second one is, um, the disruption is, you know, more achievements and possessions does not equal more success. Um, oftentimes again, as adults, we're like, you know, we have to get the house and the car and the, and the white picket fence and like, you know, the second home or like be able to travel to really, you know, traveling is important, <laughs> but, but possessions, but you know, possessions and achievements. Like I have X number of lucites from X number of deals being closed. It's like, you know, what's, you know, what is the, the most important thing? And I think the more space you can create for yourself, the more you realize, like, uh, there's only a few simple things that I want in my life. And ultimately it's love, friendship, companionship, you know, the things that truly matter long-term and, you know, the achievements and sort of the possessions just, you know, end up being sort of just fleeting. So, um, and I, what I, what I, what, how this book is going to be different from most books is, that um, at the end of every chapter, there's going to be a children's book element to it. So I'm going to make you do a kinesthetic sort of thing. So an action. And so you have to take a physical action at the end of every chapter to sort of help flex your sort of muscles into taking action outside of your, outside of this book. You know, you want to take action in your life um, and, and not be so passive. We're so taught, we're taught so much to be just passive station, you know, just like accommodating, okay, this is the way things are conforming to society. And this book is going to, at the end of every chapter is going to force you to sort of take physical action. And so it keeps progressing, you know, into for the first few are sort of like bigger things, get back to like state of wonder. And then, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, just clearing out your sort of like all the clutter in your life. You don't need all this stuff. You Marie Kondo, your, you know, you, there's this book called Marie Kondo, you know, I don't know if you heard the, the, the book, the, the life-changing, um, art of tidying up. Uh, yeah. Tidying mm-hmm. up. Yes. And, um, she talks about like everything in your life has to bring you joy. So you have to go through every one of your cupboards and, and look at every single thing and ask you, ask yourself, does this bring me joy? Does this bring me joy? Does this bring me joy? And, um, once you realize you're like, I really don't need a whole lot of things to bring me joy. I got rid of 85% of my stuff and I feel lighter and so much just happier because I have less clutter. And when you have less clutter in your life, it creates room for so much more for you to, for, you know, for you to, um, experience. Um, yeah, it sounds like a great sort I'll, of companion book. I was going to say to do cool shit. It's almost like a, the oh, action yeah. guide in some ways to some of those principles. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, there's, there's just, there's, I think one of the things that a lot of people have said, and it's in this book as well, is that, you know, not everyone can be a disruptor. Like not everyone can think disruptively. And, and, and I challenge everyone and I say, yes, absolutely. Everybody can, if they take on this new kind of way of thinking, you know, if you again, read this book, you'll be able to really think like a disruptor and everyone can change the course of their lives and can set the tone of their lives and can, you know, just decide to do exactly what they want and live exactly how they, 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 they want to live. Um, and you don't have to conform to society. That's, that's one of the biggest, um, sort of how to's of the book. Do you, you, you do all this stuff. You've got these businesses, you've got this book coming out, you speak, what do you do to sort of wind down? Like, do you have a habit or a hobby that's going to sort of help you relax on the weekend? What does that look like? What's the wind down time? 
Yeah, well, I have an amazing community of you know fellow entrepreneurs, creatives, artists, poets. You know, in our in our New York tribe, we're called the Boom Spiral, um, which is like as a collective, you create a boom. It's a, it's the opposite of a doom spiral, um, and uh, and it's just people I'm very inspired by in my life, and I've spent the last like you know seven eight years sort of like finding and massaging these these this tribe and meeting meeting interesting people in in. Um, and bringing everyone together, and now it's grown to a level where everyone's bring more people are bringing each other in, and it's it's just it's incredible, um, and uh, that's you know I choose to spend time with people who have who are big thinkers, who have lots of ideas themselves, who are creatives, who are artists, who are poets, and and I just they just fill up my tank. Oftentimes, I just sit and listen and hear them talk about their new thing that they're working on or their idea or their new philosophical direction that they're taking with their whatever. And it's just, um, it's, it fills me up. Yeah. So it's almost like having other people who are excited and passionate and then seeing them gives you that energy back because you kind of get it off For them sure. or something. Yeah. And now of course, with my family, you know, Andrew, my partner is like the world's greatest human ever. And we have so much fun together and we work out together. We take walks together. We travel together. We adventure together. He surprises me all the time. We surprise each other. And, um, and now we have a son together, which is, you know, a, a reflection of our love. And it's such a fun new adventure to like welcome a new being in our lives. That's just completely free of societal stigmas and and sort of what you should and shouldn't do and and we're gonna just give him the 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 sort of confidence to be completely you know exactly who he wants to be and um i can't wait for that yeah that's amazing so i i want to take us to a bit more of a rapid fire style uh q a um and my my first question is uh what do you not have time for anymore that you wish you did Um, I mean, I, I have time for everything in my life. I've built that, that's, I built the life for, I mean, time is the most non-renewable resource we have. It's like the, the most precious resource we have. And I think the definition of success is freedom of time. And, um, and I've, I've really, um, focused on that. And so now I can really do anything I want. That's a great answer. Uh, as far as stuff that you consume, so um, books, podcasts, Netflix, what are you streaming and, and what are two books that really stand out to you um, that you've consumed recently? Um, well, I've been reading a lot of children's books um, lately. And um, let me actually grab this one. Um, hold on one second. Oops. So most recently, um, I read Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, which is um, an epic book, which I think everyone should read. It's um, it gave me so much energy and fire to keep going because like every chapter you're at the edge of your seat, like, how is he going to make it? How is he going to keep the lights on? I don't understand. And he just figures it out. And that's just like been my life too. And I've just felt so validated reading that book. Um, all the stuff he went through. Yeah. It's an epic journey Um, for sure. Yeah. This is a New York times bestseller and it's this beautiful book. Just it's called press here. 
And I think my book, Disruptor, is going to be very much inspired by this book. Um, this was given to uh, me and Andrew by, by one of our friends. And it's just this beautiful creative book where you have to press on different on each page and you have to like take an action and it just drives this children's book forward and it just it was so fun and this is what made me realize that really and I look it up and research that humans are 65% of humans are visual learners and yet all books are just black words on a white page and it doesn't make any sense so um, I'm changing that in my book. It's going to be very visually arresting. It's going to be very interesting. There's going to be children's book elements to it. It's going to be very cool. Um, your sister, so, I, I guess if I remember correctly, um, your sister, is she an illustrator? started Daybreaker. Yes, yeah, I was going to say she had she Sprouts. Started, is that right? Yep. She started, she started Super Sprouts and she also started Daybreaker, the morning dance movement, which is kicking ass. It's in 20 cities globally. I can't be more proud of her. She's really spreading so much joy around the world. It's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, I guess I was wondering if she was going to maybe help you out with some of that designer illustration or ideas. Yeah. There too. Yeah. I've asked her, I've asked her to help me with the 13. I've, I have 13 illustrations. I want major illustrations. I want her to make, help, help me make. And, um, and, uh, hopefully she'll have time for yeah. it. But yeah. Is there anything else that you've streamed recently or listened to on a podcast that's been particularly inspiring for you? Um, well, I mean, I really loved uh, Mark Manson's book, uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. I read it twice in a row, which I've never done ever in my life. Um, it's just such a great book, and it just gives you so much perspective on, like, what to give a fuck about. Um, streaming, um, you know, I listen to a ton of different NPR podcasts, um, you know, how I built just all, how I built this, like all kinds of fun, entrepreneurial, cool things, just, just kind of all over the Tim Ferriss, you know, I listen to, um, his podcast a lot. It's very interesting. Um, you know, Mark Marin. um, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm creating a podcast myself, um, awesome. which is going to be really fun. It's on, it's basically called, it's called all things taboo and looking at all the things that are taboo in our world that we can't talk about. And we're going to talk about. That's, that's a great idea. Uh, yeah. What else are you working on? I guess this sort of answers that question. What else are you working on in the background? Is there anything else cooking up? So you've got a new book in the works. You've got this podcast in the works. Is anything else kind of cooking yeah, in the background? Have, yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm building Tushy, which I'm really excited about. I think it's going to change. It's really going to change the world. It's going to help save 15 million trees from getting cut down. It's going to help, you know, change our health and hygiene practices. It's going to really help fight the global sanitation crisis. I'm extremely passionate about it. Um, and I have three new inventions that I'm working on as well. Um, one of which is in the Tushy space. And then um, two inventions are outside that. Um, which I'm really excited about. Amazing. Um, I'm excited to to see those. Are you using any tools in particular to manage all these different products? Um, I mean, I use just um, Google Docs, you know, and I, I keep everything sort of outlined Google Docs. And um, it's not, I mean, if you have teams for most of the things, um, you know, my book, I, I, I'm working on my own, um, but Tushy, I have an incredible team. I love them so much. And um you know, thinks it's running on its own now. And, uh, you know, it's all, it's all great. I'm, you know, my restaurants, I have an amazing partner who runs the restaurants. Um, so it's just really a matter of, um, finding the right people to run the operation. Totally. Well, I have one more question for you. Um, I'm just sort of curious how you see the next, you know, few years playing out 
Uh, one way of asking that is if you had to start over today, you know, where would you start? Um, and this is partly for people who are looking to jump in and maybe get out there on their own. Yeah. Um, so yeah, how do you sort of see the next few years? Is there anything that you think is just interesting that's happening in terms of industries, um, areas people could, could explore? Yeah. I mean, I think it's really about like asking yourself, like what stuff sucks in your world, you know, like really looking around yourself and seeing not like, I'm going to start another t-shirt company. I'm going to create another shoe. Like I'm going to do another thing that exists already. It's like, there are millions of problems on planet earth that need to be solved. There are so many people that need to be helped. And so rather than being one of many, go and be one of one and solve a real problem and, and make a real mark for yourself while we're here for 21,000 days, you know, from the point you graduate college to the point we die. And hopefully the last 10, you know, thousands of days, you're not going to be in grinding, you know, building something. Although I plan to, um, to the day I die. Um, so it's really about looking around yourself and saying, asking yourself what sucks in my world, asking yourself, does it suck for a lot of people? And then the third question is, can I be passionate about this issue, cause or community for a really long time? This is like my three questions that I keep, you know, people keep asking me. I'm so much, I have so much passion inside of me. I, I want to start something. I just don't know what to start. Like, where do I begin? I want to do something. And just like, look around you, go travel, go backpack for a little bit around and you'll find plenty of problems to solve and not like superficial problems, but deep problems, real things that people can feel like that, that, that sort of, wow, you've really made an impact. And that is also going to keep, help keep you going to keep fighting and keep pushing and keep building because without that sort of passion for solving that great problem, you won't have enough of oomph to keep going. Like for me with Tushy, like so long, people were like, no way, people aren't going to want to change bidets. Oh, people aren't going to bleed their underwear. People aren't going to do this. People aren't going to do that. And now I'm seeing people transform. People are starting like going crazy over it. And they're like telling all their friends and they're just like, I can't believe I've been wiping my ass all this time. I can't believe I've been doing it this way all this time. It's just, you just have to believe and you have to know, I know that this deserves to exist. I know that this is going to be a huge home run because once more, the, 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 once it gets past the early adopter phase and, and more people try a bidet and use it, they're like, what have I been doing with my life? This doesn't make any sense. And so you just have to keep believing. Awesome. Well, I, I think that's a great way to end the show. Um, I don't know if there's a date for the book coming out that you want to talk about. Next, next fall. fall. Okay. Yeah. Comes out next fall. And if you want to, if you want to see any and all of my projects, just go to mickeyagrawal.com and you can catch, you can see everything. Or if you want to follow me on Instagram, just follow me at, at Mickey Agrawal. Perfect. And we'll link everything up as well. So, all right. Well, thank you Sweet. so much yeah. for the time, Mickey. I really appreciate talking with you. Thank yep, you. Thanks.